0: to the podcast of Northside Assembly of God in Crowley, Louisiana. All right, I'm excited to preach this morning. We are are in our Colossians series, and uh, the title of my sermon today is The Big Ink Stain. You'll see what that's about a little bit later, The Big Ink Stain. And we're looking at this letter, this ancient letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church, a local church, Similar in ways to this one, a church in the ancient city of Colossae, Paul is writing to encourage them and give them some instruction, some warning. And so in the first chapter of this letter, of course, Paul wouldn't have had chapters and verses. We add that later so we can kind of organize it. But this would have read just like any ordinary letter. But right in the middle of what we call the first chapter, Paul puts into his letter... A part of an ancient Christian hymn, whether it's a verse or a stanza or whatever you want to call it, he takes an ancient Christian hymn and he puts it in there. And we've been studying and looking at this hymn very closely over these last couple of messages that I've preached. And I want to look one more time at this ancient hymn in the middle of Colossians 1, and then we're actually going to add a little bit to it. We're going to we're going to go three verses further than where this hymn stops. So it's found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And that's what I want to read first, this ancient hymn. Go ahead and put it on the screen. Let's go ahead and read it together. He is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Jesus, the Son. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all things in heaven and on earth were created. Things visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He Himself is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place in everything. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Now, Paul's going to take this hymn, and he's going to apply it to this church. Look at what he says, verse 21. And you, who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He is now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel let's pray one more time i want us to include bonnie gaspard who broke her hip once more uh, broke her hip not even a year ago and uh and now we, she is back in medical care with another broken hip at the same place and let's pray for jane and eric lower as well who are sick lord we thank you for your presence here this morning you're good you're wonderful. You're the one who brings healing and restoration. You are the one who brings salvation, deliverance, and freedom. And we are so privileged and honored to even be in your presence today. I pray for Bonnie Gaspar, Lord. Touch her. Strengthen her, God. Be with her, Lord. Be with her husband, Robert, their family. Lord, I pray for a quick recovery. Let your grace rest upon her. Relieve any pain she may be dealing with. Be with Eric and Jane Lower. Strengthen them and heal them, Lord. And Lord, right now, as we prepare to engage with Your Word, each one of us right now, we surrender this moment. Our thoughts, our our task on our to-do list, everything else that could occupy our minds, we surrender it before You. And I pray, Holy Spirit, speak boldly, into our lives, and may we receive it deep into the soil of our hearts, so that it may take root and bear fruit for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. This hymn that we've been looking at for these last few weeks is just fantastic. I mean, it's easy to just, like, gloss through it and read it like you would any book and just mindlessly go through the words of it, but when you really stop and think about the things that are being said here about Jesus, about the Son of God, it's really mind-blowing. It's like it's straining for words, trying to express the magnificence of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. He is before all things, the creator of all things, Whether in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, thrones, powers, dominions, authorities, all things are created by him. All things are created for him. All things are created through him. And he holds it all together. He's the firstborn from among the dead so that he can have supremacy in all things. And God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. In other words, everything that makes God God dwells in him. And through him, he's reconciling all things to himself, and he's bringing peace to all things. It's just fantastic. It's magnificent. It's awe-inspiring, what is being said here about Christ. But if I'm honest, there's one part of this hymn that, at least in one sense, just doesn't seem to fit with the rest. You may have noticed it's the part that I just left out a moment ago. It's the part where it says, and he's the head of the church. I mean, here's this hymn that expresses the cosmic transcendence, the glory of Christ. It says, all things in heaven and earth were created by him. So you just think about, for example, the universe, which we can't even get our minds wrapped around, the sheer size and power of the universe with its 200 billion galaxies and its 10 billion billion, trillion stars. And this hymn says every square inch of it was created by Christ, through Christ, for Christ. And this very present moment, he's the one that holds it all together. And then, um, oh, by the way, he's also the head of the church. You know, at best you could say, well, that seems like a small little thing to put in this hymn. And then what do you think of when you think of the church? Well, you think of Christians. You think of people. And people are messy. And people are stubborn. I know that I can be stubborn. And sometimes people can be downright ugly. Now, I'm going to be real here today, okay? For the first few minutes of this message, I'm going to need you to cut me some slack, I promise you by the end of this sermon, this is going to be a nice, edifying, uplifting word. But there's this unwritten rule sometimes in a church setting that whenever you're the preacher, you have to make Christians look good. You have to make churches look good because we're selling a product here. You know, we're selling this Christianity product and we want to present it in as appealing as a fashion as we can so you don't say anything negative you gotta make churches and Christians look good and that's kind of this unwritten rule that we walk into this place with well I'm going to break that rule this morning <laughs> and so if that rule is important to you just brace yourself it's going to be uplifting at the end hang in there for the first few minutes let me give you some honest thoughts let me first say this I love the church I love this church. I love Northside. I love the things that we've stood for for decades. I love the gospel. I love Jesus. I love the Bible. I love the kingdom of God. I love the church. But sometimes a church can be an ugly place where ugly things happen and i'm just speaking over my 39 years of experience in various churches certainly there's a lot of glory a lot of beauty a lot of majesty in a local church i i don't want to minimize that but in 39 years of church experience i can i can tell you i've seen a lot of nasty stuff i've seen power struggles i've seen conflicts that just become grotesque the level of hatred the level of unforgiveness and vitriol that has no place in a fellowship of people who call Jesus Lord. I've seen a lot of ugliness. And and there's been times I don't even want anything to do with it. Now, opting out of it is not an option for me. Because if I am interested in following Jesus, I have no choice but to be a part of his body. I hear people sometimes say in our culture, well, I love Jesus, I, don't, I just don't love the church. Well, if you're going to love Jesus, you're going to love what Jesus loves. And Jesus loves the church and gave himself up for the church. So, so no matter how unpleasant one's experience may have been in a particular local church, there's no other way of being a Christian than to be part of a local assembly of believers. So I understand all of that, and my commitment to Christ binds me to the church. But if I'm honest with you, I don't always like it. In fact, there have been short seasons in my life where I do it in spite of the church. Often when I've heard Christians on television or radio or social media, often some of the things that they say just makes me cringe. Not all of it, to be sure. But some of it just makes my stomach turn. I got to turn it off because it's not healthy for me. I don't even want to be associated with it. Throughout history, it gets worse if you if you just look throughout history, the church has done some nasty stuff. Now certainly a lot of good beautiful stuff as well. I don't want to minimize that. But there's been a lot of nasty stuff. Stuff that makes you wonder, really this is at the center of God's plan for creation? So for example in the uh, 15th through 17th century whenever the conquistadors came over from Europe to conquer this land in the name of Jesus, they brought smallpox with them. Now, in Europe, smallpox was so common, there was a herd immunity against it. People had a natural immunity in their system so that when a person contracted smallpox, it usually wasn't lethal. But the Native Americans had never seen smallpox. There was no immunity in their system. And so 40% of them who contracted smallpox, died. At the beginning of the 17th century, somebody developed a way to immunize people against smallpox. But the church leader said, no, don't give it to the natives. Don't give it to them. This is God's judgment against them, and we don't want to interfere with that. I mean, look at this. This is proof that God wants us to take this land. Look how he's slaughtering all these people, never mind the fact that we're the ones doing it because we won't immunize him against it. And, and you see stuff like that sometimes in the church history, and you wonder, man, really? The church is at the center of God's plan of rescuing the world? Sure doesn't seem like it. In the 15th and 16th century, they began to develop some pain-relieving medicine to give women who were suffering with the pain of childbirth. And again, it was the church leaders who said, no, don't give it to them. Let them suffer in pain. This is God's judgment. Remember, it was the woman in the Garden of Eden who seduced Adam to take the fruit. And so they're supposed to feel this pain. Don't give them any medicine. Let them suffer. There was a man named uh, King James the Fourth. Incidentally, he is the one that was... Uh, he's the King James that... Uh, is in the, the name King James Bible. He, he's the one that authorized it. But there's a situation, there's a story where he found out about a woman who um, who had taken some of this medication in order to relieve her pain during childbirth. And when he found out about it, he had her burned at the stake. Hallelujah. When anesthesia was first developed in the 19th century, you know, that wonderful medicine that prevents you from feeling any pain whenever you get a limb amputated or whenever you have a a root canal. If you've ever had a root canal, you can thank anesthesia for blunting some of that pain that you would have otherwise experienced. Well, it was the Christians who said, no, we're supposed to experience this pain. This is God's judgment for sin. And so the church is so often In its history, it has been on the wrong side of a lot of these issues. And when you have that in your mind, you could think to yourself, what is that church doing in the middle of this glorious hymn? And if you go back earlier, it's even worse. Now, I'm almost done, so just bear with me here for a couple more minutes. But in the first uh, 300 years or so of Christianity, the church was actually pretty good. It wasn't perfect. But in large part, they really did look like Jesus. The early church, the early Christians were known for making a priority of helping the poor. Assisting people who had no safety nets, helping them, taking care of them. We know that the early Christians were the ones who would go and rescue little babies, little infants that had been abandoned by their parents, which was an epidemic in the Roman world. You don't realize how prevalent this was, that if a mother gave birth to a child and if she and or the father didn't want it, what you do is you just take the baby and leave it on a hillside and let the animals get it. And nobody would bat an eye. This was how it was handled. This is how things were done. Well, it was the Christians who took it upon themselves and sacrificed of themselves to rescue these children and make sure that they were looked after and cared for and raised it was the early Christians who actually initialized the very first hospitals, the world's first orphanages, the world's first, first relief organizations and charities. All of this was inspired from within the early church and the movement that they started. It was the Christians who whenever plagues would hit and there were sick people who nobody wanted anything to do with, the Christians would risk their lives to take in these people and make sure they were cared for and looked after. They were just a God-glorifying bunch of people. We have accounts of the early Christians whenever persecution was especially violent and rampant. Christians, of course, were executed in in numerous barbaric ways, sometimes burned at the stakes, sometimes thrown to the lions in the Roman Colosseum. But we have examples, we have accounts of Christians in the midst of their execution, blessing the crowds. I've read early church historians who say that one of the reasons why Christianity exploded in growth in the first three centuries is because of the beauty of the way that they suffered and died. Not just that they suffered and died, but the fact that that they entered into their death with courage, with peace, with calmness. They saw it as a privilege to die in the same way that their savior did. An early church historian says that in large part, it's because of the way they died. It caused people around them, the pagans, to notice and say, something is different about these folks. They're not fighting back. They're not afraid. There's a peace about them. There's a courage about them. There's something supernatural about these people, and it magnetically drew people to Christianity. No matter how many times the enemy tried to crush the church In those first three centuries, it always backfired in his face. And the church grew exponentially in the midst of persecution, 40% per decade. Those first 270 years of Christianity, Christianity grew 40% per decade. Then around the middle of the fourth century, Satan comes up with a better idea. And he says, okay, if I can't crush the church with persecution, if I can't exterminate the church, then maybe let's do the opposite. Let's give it some power. And that's exactly what they do. That's exactly what happens and it works like a charm. In the middle of the fourth century with the rise of Constantine and his quote unquote conversion to Christianity, the church now acquires all this political power over the Roman world, something they had never had before. And no sooner did that happen that the mindset began to change. And rather than focusing on loving like Jesus, serving like Jesus, being like Jesus, doing the things that Jesus did, now the mentality became, now let's go conquer the world. Because God's given us the power of the sword. Let's conquer the world. If anybody gets in our way, we'll slaughter them. And that's exactly what happens over the next few centuries. The, the history is just tragic. It's demonic. It's filled with blood and barbarism. We have, we have the church immediately, within the first year of coming into power, the church executes its first heretic. It begins executing Jews, executing pagans, down into the crusade, slaughtering Muslims. And when that, when that fun dried up, now Christians began turning the sword on other Christians. And so you have centuries of um, Christian-on-Christian violence in Europe for centuries, the Hundred Years' War, the Thirty Years' War, and on and on it goes. Christians fighting other Christians in the name of God and country. Let's conquer the world in Jesus' name. And it was the same mindset that led the conquistadors to to come over here to conquer this land in Jesus' name, slaughtering hundreds of thousands of Native Americans. I, I could go on and on and on. But if you get real about the history here, and we've got to learn the history. We've got to know the history. There's lessons we need to gain. Because for those who don't understand and learn history, it's going to repeat itself. And if you're real about what's happened in the history of the church, well, putting that in the middle of this glorious hymn just doesn't seem to fit. Christ, he's the image of God, the firstborn of all creation, before all things, created all things in heaven and earth, visible and indivisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, Christ holds things all together. And he's the firstborn from among the dead. And he has supremacy in all things. The fullness of God dwelt in him, and by him all things are reconciled. He's bringing peace to all things, so glorious, so wonderful and magnificent. And then right in the middle of that, oh, yeah, and he's also the head of the church. It's like a big black ink stain in the middle of a beautiful wedding gown. Or you can think of it this way. It's like sitting in front of a symphony and listening to an orchestra play Handel's Messiah. And then right in the middle of it, somebody blows an air horn. You're like, what is that doing there? You're ruining it. That doesn't belong. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, Ryan, all of that history is true, but... You know, the church that did all of that stuff, that's not the true church. And I agree with you a thousand percent. I, I agree with that a thousand percent. That church that killed people, slaughtered people, burned people at the stake, conquered lands in Jesus' name by the power of the sword, that is not the true body of Christ. We're called to be the true body of Christ. But what does it mean to be the body of Christ? It means we are to now carry out the same work that Jesus did in his first body, in his physical body. When Jesus was on this earth, the same things that he did, we are now to be carrying on as an extension of his body right now in the earth. So we're to be loving like Jesus, serving like Jesus, sacrificing for people like Jesus, being humble like Jesus, blessing our enemies, not calling down legions of angels to destroy them and wipe them out, blessing them. This is the example Jesus left for us. This is what Jesus endorses. This is the church that is the true church, the true body of Christ. And any church that doesn't look like that is a false counterfeit. Somebody say amen. So I totally agree with that. But then let's just ask ourselves the question, do I look like Jesus? Ask yourself that. Am I living like Jesus? Are we living like Jesus and loving like Jesus? Now, here's the thing. I believe by God's grace and God's power, I believe in many ways we're moving in the right direction. I think I'm moving in the right direction, slowly but surely. Sometimes for me, it feels like a two steps forward, three steps back kind of thing. But there's movement there, and I thank God for that. Whenever we come together like we did recently, whenever we come together and sacrifice of our own resources in order to help and bless victims of our recent hurricanes in Louisiana. That's the kind of stuff that the body of Christ ought to be known for. We had this beautiful graduation with Fabian a moment ago, five years ago when our church launched the Way Training Center. We, we, this was a dream from God. I don't use those words casually. This is a dream God had put in our hearts. And we didn't have a penny in the bank for it. But you all sacrificed time, money, effort, energy. And now we have this thriving ministry where lives are being restored and men are being formed and shaped in the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not every church should do what we're doing. Not every church can. Not every church is supposed to. This is something God gave us to do. But this is the kind of testimony and the kind of work that churches ought to be doing in their communities. When I hear stories of you, some of you that, that find little ways, sometimes secret ways of serving people and sacrificing for others in our church, and nobody else ever hears about it but God does, that's the kind of thing that the body of Christ ought to be known for and it's beautiful, and it looks like Jesus, and that's what kingdom activity is. So I thank God for what we're doing. I thank God for those pockets of kingdom growth that I see here and elsewhere. But if we're honest, we'd also have to confess that we're not quite there yet. We're not quite where we need to be. I'm not quite where I need to be. I fall short. So we've got a long way to go. And so at best, maybe we might say, well, maybe the ink stain isn't quite as big as it was. Or maybe the air horn isn't quite as loud. But it's still there, and it still doesn't quite fit the hymn. So what is, it, what is the church doing in this hymn? Now, for the rest of this message, I want to take a totally different approach. Because maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe we're thinking along the wrong lines. And I want to show you this quote by C.S. Lewis and just leave it up there for a minute or two. He says, a mark of greatness is that you have the capacity and the willingness to enter into the small. Now, here's an example of what he's talking about. So at our house, we have two dogs. We have a little chihuahua who's going on 16 years old. And I've used him in many sermon illustrations. But we have another dog who I'm going to use in my illustration today. We have a Labrador Retriever who's about five times bigger than Deuce is his name. Her name is Emmy. She's not even quite two years old. She's full of energy. Anybody got a Labrador Retriever? All right. Okay. A couple of you do. So she's not quite two years old, full of energy. Emmy is her name. Now, here's the thing. If I want to connect with Emmy... As a human being, I have to stoop down to her level. I have to stoop down, and I have to enter into Emmy's world and play her game. So I can wrestle with her. I can fetch with her. I can throw a tennis ball with her. But she can't reciprocate on my level. She can't play my games and do life the way I do it. If I'm going to connect with Emmy, I have to make myself small and enter into her level. You know, if our family's gathered around the television and we're playing video games, if we're playing Mario Kart, Emmy can't jump up and grab a controller and race with us. If I'm sitting on the couch watching the New Orleans Saints utterly destroy the Atlanta Falcons... Emmy can't sit next to me and and debate on uh, the merits of Atlanta's secondary versus New Orleans' secondary. She can't do that. She can't jump into my world. Because I'm the superior being, I have to stoop down and connect with her on her level, in her world, and play her game. And C.S. Lewis says, that's what greatness is, that's what greatness does. That's the mark of superior maturity. The mark of greatness is that you're able and willing to make yourself small. You can take something that seemingly is worthless and make something worthwhile of it. You can take something that seems insignificant and make something hugely significant with it. That's the mark of greatness. And see, I I think he's hitting the nail on the head because that's exactly what I see God doing throughout the Bible. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, God chose the foolish things the things that don't make sense, the things everybody overlooks. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise or what seems wise. He chose the weak things of the world. You ever feel weak? You ever feel insignificant? You ever feel like nobody notices you or cares about you? God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that don't even exist To nullify the things that are. Why? So that nobody may boast before him. God shows off his greatness by becoming small. He shows off his wisdom by using what is judged to be foolish. He shows off his strength by working with weakness. This is exactly what I see God doing throughout the story of the Bible. So, for example, God chooses to use Abraham. Now, we all know Abraham, giant of the faith. He really is. I remember singing songs about Abraham when I was a kid. Father Abraham had many. He said, we had more time. I'd have you stand up, and we'd do that whole song together. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just, how does it end? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Right arm. Hi, Father Abraham. Okay. Great man of faith, pioneer of faith, one of our heroes. And God chose to use Abraham, but let's not forget that Abraham is also the man who twice tried to pawn his wife off to other men, claiming that she was his sister just to save his own skin. Not exactly heroic, godly behavior here. And then we have mighty King David. Man after God's own heart. Hallelujah. And let's not forget that David also slept with a man's wife, impregnated her, and then conspired to have him killed in battle in order to try to cover up his sin. Not exactly courageous, godly behavior. And yet, God works through Abraham and works through David. And they're like on the Mount Rushmore of the Bible. They're at the top. This is all throughout Scripture. There's an incident in the story of Scripture where where God chooses to stoop down and speak through a donkey to a pagan sorcerer. And He's able to use this message from this pagan sorcerer that's given through this donkey in order to further His purposes with Israel. So God stoops to the level of a donkey. See, God shows off His greatness by becoming small and using the weak and despised things to bring about his purposes in the world. We see this most clearly in Jesus Christ, especially around this time of year. As we've been saying these last few weeks, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He perfectly reveals the Father to us. He is the exact representation of God's very essence. If you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at who? The Father. And in Jesus, we see the supreme, quintessential example of God showing off his greatness by becoming small. This same God who fills the entire expanse of space and, and, if, and infinity beyond that, and even now holds every molecule in existence right in the palm of his hand. And this same God becomes a microscopic zygote implanted in the womb of an unwed Jewish peasant girl in the first century. And that shows the kind of greatness that he is. Listen to these statements. Listen to this. Think about what I'm telling you. This is a God who shows his magnificent, unfathomable beauty by letting himself get beaten to a pulp beyond recognition as Jesus was crucified. This is a God who shows his omnipotent strength by letting himself be crucified out of love for his enemies. This is a God who shows his exaltation by being despised. He shows his incredible glory by taking on our shame. He shows his incredible wisdom by being willing to look like a total fool. He shows his power by becoming weak. He shows us that he's the king of kings and the lord of lords by becoming a humble servant. This is a God who shows his unsurpassable holiness by becoming our sin. See, everything's upside down. His ways are not our ways. It blows your mind. And see, now, perhaps... Now you can see what the church is doing in this magnificent hymn. Because if God can accomplish his purposes through the church, then you know he's God. You know he's great. You know Jesus is supreme. God could choose to use anything he wanted to to accomplish his purpose, and he decides he chooses to use the church. Now you can begin to understand what this ink stain is doing in the middle of this beautiful wedding gown. Now you understand what this air horn is doing in the middle of Handel's Messiah. It's because God's showing us he can create a beautiful wedding gown out of the ink stain. He can create Handel's Messiah out of the air horn. And folks, we're the air horn. We're the ink stain. And God uses this weak, pathetic, foolish, dumb stuff and he uses it to achieve immeasurably wonderful beautiful stuff and it shows off his greatness it shows off his magnificence it shows that he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and all glory belongs to him he reigns supreme in all things therefore no one has any room to boast so how does this apply to our lives I want to give you two things first of all it means And I'm so thankful that Fabian's testimony was today, and he shared some stuff that really goes along with this message, that God can take a mess and use it to preach his message. It means we can have hope, no matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done. You There's hope, but the hope is only in Jesus. Never See, here's the the seduction of a young Christian. Never start putting your hope in how you're doing. I work with people who are growing in their faith, who God is moving in their lives, and the danger is when they start seeing their growth, they start seeing evidence of spiritual life, and they start putting their hope and their faith in how they're doing. And so as soon as they fail, what tends to happen is they just become full of despair and they quit. And sometimes you never even see them again. They're just because they were putting their hope all along in their own performance. All of our hope absolutely must be in Jesus who already accomplished what we needed to be accomplished. Because we can't live up to that standard put all of your hope in Jesus. Don't put your hope in how you're doing. Don't put your hope in how the church is doing. For goodness sakes, don't put your hope in any, in how any politician's doing. Don't put your hope in how you think America's doing. Don't put your hope in how the economy's doing, folks. Don't put your hope in how the world's doing and how Iran's doing, how North Korea. Don't put your hope in anything other than Jesus Christ, who is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the rock of ages, the one who never changes. Amen. And then a final word is this. Look at me. Oh, I'm not supposed to go down here because of the live stream. I'll just stay right here. Just keep it. Let me go back up. Sometimes I just want to get right in your face. The second thing is this. God can use you. If God can use Abraham... If God can use David, if God can speak through a donkey for heaven's sake, God can use you. I don't care who you are. I don't care what horrible crimes you've committed. I don't care what heinous deeds you've committed in your life. I don't care what you've done. Look at me. Don't let the devil take you out as if your sin could ever compete with the righteousness and forgiveness of Christ it doesn't stand a chance. So maybe you walk into this place on a Sunday morning like this and you feel like the ink blot. You feel like you're the ink stain in the middle of this beautiful wedding dress. You feel like you're the air horn in the middle of Handel's Messiah. Welcome to the club. You belong here. And God can use you. And when you surrender yourself completely to God... He can take the mess and make a message out of it. He can make something beautiful and glorious with it. But it's all because of him. None of us have any reason to boast because he has supremacy in all things. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. To learn more about Northside Assembly of God, check out our website at www.northsidecrowley.com.